From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest today on Frankly Speaking is Associate Professor of Turfgrass Science at Penn State University, Ben McGraw. Ben did his bachelor's degree, believe it or not, in animal science at the University of Maine, master's in entomology at the University of Massachusetts, and a PhD in entomology at Rutgers University. He served briefly on the faculty at SUNY Delhi here in New York State, where I got to know him pretty well. And now he's been at Penn State University for several years studying turfgrass entomology, biological control, and insect ecology. Ben is our resident expert in the Northeast on the annual bluegrass weevil, and we sat down to talk about the latest thinking on chemical, biological, and cultural control and some of the exciting ecological research that he's got going on at Penn State University. All right, Ben, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. You've been with me before. We've talked about this issue We've done it with that other degenerate New England sports fan, Jim Brosnan. Where's my buddy? (laughs) So welcome back. And and I want to revisit the part of our conversation, just you and I, about annual bluegrass weevil management resistance and really what progressive managers are doing and where leading researchers like you are taking us. And so let's start with... You know, you did that survey a while back, and there was a couple of telling things about the management of annual bluegrass weevil, Ben, that struck me. One was the number of guys with known resistance that keep spraying product that the organism has some level of resistance to, and then the sheer number and amount of sprays that are going on. So, you know, you did that survey several years ago. You've been much more integrated into the sort of Northeast ABW problem in your professorial role than you've been at other ports in your career. As you're going around now, thinking about your survey results, talking to people, are we getting better uh, and less chemically intensive? Are we getting worse and more chemically intensive? Or are we sort of in between? Yeah, uh, I think we're better. I really do. I think that's the optimist in me. but. that survey, just to set the background on that, we really sent it out to all the northeastern GCSAs from northeastern Canada, the Atlantic Canada, Canadian provinces down to uh, North Carolina. And we asked these people to fill out this survey about management practices. And that led to quite a few nice studies that we'll probably talk about later, too. But we were trying to get a feel for what people were using for chemistries and where they were seeing damage. So we captured a lot of things and we're still getting a lot of information out of that. I agree with you. The surprising things that I found in there were the amount of people who had self-reported so that it was somewhat self-reporting of pyrethroid resistant populations. Some of these people knew that from the testing that we did at their golf course, but largely this was self-reported whether they believe that they had issues with pyrethroids or not. But those people who were still spraying pyrethroids, even though they indicated that they saw a decrease in susceptibility to the pyrethroids. So that, that was pretty shocking, and it was good to get that information out. I would love to follow up on that survey maybe every four to five years to see really how it's changed. So you started your answer by saying we're better. Yep. In what ways do you think uh, we've gotten better? Well, I mean, I think having that survey out there and then having people like me give talks showing the practices, I think that kind of makes it hit home a little bit better. I think that there have also been some things, some innovations out of industry. So um, 
Ferrance, uh, which is cyanotrinolprol, mm-hmm. uh, was not on the market at that time. Matchpoint from Dow, DuPont, Corteva, I believe they're called now, mm-hmm. uh, was not on the market at that time. And those two products are really highly effective larvicides. Those have also changed uh, some of our management practices. Okay, so let me stop you there because that's good. Th- this is important for people that are just either becoming aware of this problem or really struggling with this right. problem. It doesn't hurt to separate these things out a little bit. So there are clearly products that are targeted to as adulticides, and that's where the pyrethroid resistance resides. And then there's the larvicides that, you know, once the mom lays her eggs in the sheath and, and they start to feed and work their way out, there's other products that get involved down there. So you're basically saying the development of increasingly effective larvicides has been a major improvement. And why is that? Because there weren't any or because these give us more window or what? I, you know, the level of control is much higher than what we see with our traditional ones. Then those two products that I mentioned are both larvicides, but they're not unrelated to the adulticide issue. Meaning, if you select for pyrethroid resistance by treating the adults, that can have consequences about controlling the larvae. We believe that multiple resistance is occurring in some levels where Mm. you've been extremely aggressive with the pyrethroids, increasing what we believe, and I say what we believe because it hasn't been really proven, uh, is increased metabolic degradation Mm -hmm. of these insecticides. So basically, the the insect is supercharged, and when you throw an unrelated compound, a non-pyrethroid at it, mm. now that can chew through that as well. But that's really what we believe at the high levels of resistance. Uh, very scary thing, mm. but we see where we have selected for resistance against the adults mm. can have these lingering effects mm. or, I guess, effects on larvicides as well. Boy, that's, that's fascinating. So Yeah, it's really cool from a scientific yes, standpoint. Yes, that's right. Cool for you and me, right? It's a great academic discussion. But man, I would hate to inherit a property where the former turf grass manager was dumping out tons of pyrethroid because it was cheap and it was effective and you were trying to be blemish free. And then they get to the end of their career and hopefully retire. And then you take over. And now you've got the situation where one or two chemistries might work. So just to clarify, if you have pyrethroid resistance in your adult population, are you suggesting that that can be reflected in its resistance to other chemistries like ferrance and spinosad are in? Yeah, so those two products actually work very well against resistant populations. Mm. If you develop, you know, resistance to pyrethroids, you would expect other pyrethroids, you know, like say bifenthrin is one pyrethroid. If you develop resistance to bifenthrin, then something like a lambda cyhalothrin, which is also a pyrethroid, you'd expect that not to work very well. That's what we refer to as cross resistance. Multiple resistance would be instances, not just in turf, but other agricultural crops, where you develop resistances, a class of chemistry or a, a, a single active ingredient, right. and then something unrelated in an t- entirely different class. Right. Uh, doesn't work as well. So we see this with pyrethroid resistance. So with the adults, really our only options are either a pyrethroid or an organophosphate. And so where we see pyrethroid resistance, maybe the organophosphate is is selected for control, but it's probably not going to work as well as it would 
against a susceptible, pyrethroid susceptible population. Well, well, listen, let me interrupt you there because you brought up an interesting point. A lot of things have been flying across my desk in the last several weeks that have never flown across my desk with regard to organophosphates and Roundup. I'm getting a lot of letters into my uh, mailbox, sign on to this, save this chemistry, chlorpyrifos is on there. Yeah. How big of a deal is it if we lose chlorpyrifos to what looks like both uh, states doing what they felt like the federal government didn't want to do? Yeah, that's a it's a major concern of mine. Organophosphates, for those of you who don't take my entomology class, uh, you know, it's a fairly old chemistry. It's an old class. And, uh, you know, it's very broad spectrum in how it works. It's not going to discriminate between a beneficial insect and a pest insect. And it's pretty much going to kill most of the things that it comes in contact with. It also has, you know, rather high mammalian toxicity. That's a little bit of a concern to the applicator, especially when mixing these things, because these are basically nerve toxins that we're dealing with. And we have a similar nervous system Mm -hmm. as insects. So, those are all concerns with those products. Um, how they've been able to persist in the modern world is interesting. And uh, there are definitely some solid studies in agriculture where agricultural workers have had some issues with these products. All right. So listen, let, let's talk about the larvicide component to this, because, yeah. you know, if you're saying that's where the advancements are, particularly in efficacy, would you ever suggest that it's so good that you could scout and use phenological indicators. What's the challenges to more of the industry moving to a a single larvicide application? Very few populations can just get away with a single application. And that's really about, you know, the history that you've been dealing with, how long you've been dealing with the problem, how big the population has built up. In Long Island, New York, that's pretty much ground zero for this pest. Um, very dense populations, very damaging. If it were me, I would not be probably relying on one application. And then, and back to that survey, you know, the, the regional average is about four throughout the whole region. So there's there's great variation in there. If you were to rely solely on a larvicide, which is kind of the trendy thing to do now, is let's move away from the one class that has resistance, known resistance, and the other class that maybe not have a really nice environmental profile, let's just solely treat larvae. Well, the problem is you haven't controlled any of the egg-laying adults. So we've done those studies. I did those studies at Delhi up in New York, and we see that the female can drop eggs for a very long time. You know, we tracked individual females over a two-year period, a single female, you know, they were in confinement, so they weren't getting hit by mowers or birds weren't picking them off, but she could lay eggs for like 14 weeks. And so if you don't control the adults, they're just dropping eggs every couple of days for many, many weeks. I mean, most of the eggs are going to be dropped within a two-month period, but two months means that the insects that are coming out right now in spring could be dropping eggs in April and all through May. That means you're going to have larvae showing up in from May all the way to June from that first generation. And then obviously the same scenario is repeated. And our larvicides are only going to be either effective as a contact or provide residual control in the case of ferrets for it remains unknown really how long that residual control is. So 
if you just go against the larvae, I, I still think you're you're battling really hard because you haven't controlled the egg laying stage. Interesting. So I tell you, Ben, this seems like a good place to stop because it sounds like there's ways to be smart and progressive managing this pest. So listen, let's take a break here, Ben, and we'll come back and start talking about uh, some of your research and especially some of the ecological things that you're working on. We're going to listen to a message from our sponsors, both at Dryject and Intelligrow. Uh, we'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Okay, Ben, listen, I think we've done a good job in setting the stage for, you know what? Chemicals are managing this pest, but there's something about the way this pest behaves on golf courses that's making it more and more difficult from resistance to the way it moves to the way it overwinters to the way it feeds. And one of the things that I'm very interested in because of the pressure we're under here in New York to reduce chemical use is, you know, are there, you know, viable alternatives? And I know in your graduate work, you at Rutgers, you did it a, a fair amount uh, with nematodes and alternatives on these things. And since you've been gone, you've really, from my perspective, been trying to study again how this thing behaves in the canopy. And I think you know, we're going to get to some of your work on mowing height, but why don't you just tell us a little bit about why you're starting to research the way this thing behaves? Yeah, so I'm kind of, I dabble in a lot of areas. Chemical control is definitely a large part of my program, but um, part of that is forecasting into the future. And like we talked about with chlorpyrifos, I don't really know how much longer that's going to be around. So I'm always trying to think about what's the common denominator between all these courses. And, and Long Island is definitely, you've done a lot of work there, Frank. You know, it's a very difficult place to do business because mm -hmm. of the chemical restrictions. Unfortunately, in the case of insects, you know, those restrictions have led to kind of intense chemical use, you know, so a good intention has led to a very difficult situation or even more difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm doing a fair amount of speaking in Canada these days. And, um, you know, those superintendents don't have many tools either. Uh, so we got to really kind of think about what would be common to all courses. What are solutions that 
would help everybody. And, and usually that leads me to think about biological and cultural controls. So as you mentioned, I did a lot of that for my PhD, biological aspects of it. The problem with this insect is we don't see natural enemies that are specific to this insect. We believe it's a native pest. And with a native insect, you should have specific natural enemies, a wasp that solely attacks this insect. Uh, that's generally the rule of thumb. And nematodes are generalists. They're, they're found in the soils all across the globe and kind of attack in a very general strategy. So the advantage to using them is that uh, they can persist in the soil and we can apply them through a sprayer. So that's all well and good, but they do have some drawbacks such as costs. So I think that's it. You know, it's it's kind of humbling to know that nobody's really adopted any of the research that I did during my PhD. But they're effective. Let's not leave a gray cloud over this, Ben. <laughs> oh, they're very effective. Really, once you got the cost, you, you sort of said ho-hum. I guess the ho-hum for me would be it's not effective, right? I mean, they're effective, right? They can be incredibly effective and as effective as our most um, efficacious synthetic chemicals. So so other than cost, why aren't we using them? Listen, you, you and I visit places where, you know, we could honestly say money might not be, you know, an obstacle to adopting things if there was enough pressure, yes? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is. I mean, I think the nematode industry, in some industries like mushroom production in Pennsylvania, there, it seems to be adopted. Tomato production in Canada, there's a lot of glasshouse production. I don't know what it's going to take. It's going to take maybe possibly an innovative, cutting-edge superintendent who takes a risk on it and shows that they are successful with it. And there's a known way to make it successful, right, Ben? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely things that you can do to make it successful. Um, there's no drawback to um, you know how we apply them. They can be applied through a regular spray rig that we have at the pressures that right. we apply them at. As far as the integration into the, the equipment side of things, it's not a it's not a big drawback. I would say if there's any sort of knock on them is that production can be fairly inconsistent. And you might not know that. You might be applying dead product out there. And it's kind of a catch-22. That That's not going to get better unless more people uh, sign up for it and invest in the technology. Uh, and that's so it's just kind of a circular problem. Here's what I think I hear you saying. Listen, it costs a lot. And so a lot of guys aren't using it, which means it's really not being improved right. in, in any measurable way because people aren't using it and giving feedback. It's that part. And then there's, well, it runs through a sprayer. You take the screens out and maybe you got to spray on a rainy day. Right. So you have to know what the life cycle is at the time to time it properly. And it seems like that's as much of an obstacle that, listen, I got something I throw in the tank. I think it's halfway to right day and we go. And I'm not using that as a criticism. I'm just saying when you have technology that still works, it's called, it's cheap and effective. It's hard to let go of that. Yeah. The one thing is that they are living organisms, so they have to be handled differently right. in a refrigerated. But yeah, like you said, they could be applied at the pressures that we apply them. Just take the screens out. I don't think you even need to apply on a rainy day. I mean, if you have the ability to irrigate, then you're good. They are sensitive to UV light. So typically you either do it early in the morning or at the end of the day, that shouldn't be a problem either. And then get a lot of water down after that. So all of those things are really, why not? 
go for it. So what about the timing? This is where the ecology comes in. And I know you've been playing around with this, uh, looking at Mm -hmm. your survey showing you didn't get damage on putting greens. And then you started to look at and publish things on where the adults were. Before we go to that ecological work, what stage are we targeting with the nematodes, Ben? Well, that would be larvae, and you'd want to time it similar to how we time most of our chemical insecticides. So when the insect's moving from inside the stem of the plant outside to feed on the crown. I would say the other really interesting thing in our chemical studies, um, my former advisor, Albert Koppenhofer, and I did a study over the last couple of years looking at this late rescue period. So Oftentimes, people will see damage, and they'll ask me, what can I apply to stop this damage? And usually, you have a lot of pupae at that time, and and pupae are not going to be affected by any of our chemistries. And so that's a really tough thing to say is like, I can't reduce your next generation population at this point. All you have to do is watch this damage happen. Mm. Nematodes actually will infect pupae. So Mm. that's a point for nematodes in that regard. But if you wanted to apply them to avoid damage, then you'd be doing it at our rhododendron full bloom plant indicator timing or when the insect's moving out of the stem. So if we use a phenological indicator, Mm -hmm. when you apply these nematodes, During that time, are we confident that those phenological indicators are when the peak population is, when you're likely to get 50% of the population? What do we like about when when we target, we don't obviously think we're going to kill 100% because of the asynchronicity of some of these things, yes? Correct. I mean, you're managing a population, so just like you know, weight or height in a population. You're going to have people at other ends of the spectrum, just like you're going to have some early larvae popping out of the plant. You're going to still have some in the plant, but you're hitting that sweet spot in the middle, probably two thirds of it. And that's usually good enough. Uh, I agree. We're not getting hundred percent control, but yeah, the plant indicators have time and time again, been very solid. So we have two plant indicators in the spring for Scythia when it's half green and half gold. So when it's lost half of its yellow blooms, that's when adults are really at their peak density that they've all come out of overwintering. The rhododendron is kind of developed later by Rich Coles. I think he was the first one to make that observation in Connecticut that it was occurring right around the time that that population was mostly moving from outside of the plant into the soil. But you're, you're correct. You're always going to have a few stragglers in there and a few early emergers. And that kind of goes back to that, what we discussed about timing of the adulticides or not treating with an adulticide. If you're having adults untreated and they're just laying eggs, then that timing, you know, your efficacy with that uh, application is going to be less effective because you're just going to have adults out there that aren't really going to be affected by nematodes and they're going to continue to lay eggs. Yeah, we did see that a little bit last growing season, Ben, that it seemed like populations were really high and damage persisted into the second and some even suspecting a third generation of feeding uh, late. And, you know, we were looking around trying to make recommendations. And like you said, there just aren't a lot of studies that have looked at trying to do anything with those latter populations. So am I correct in assuming we were looking at that pupil damage that we would have likely had no effect on even if we did spray something other than nematodes? Yeah, so there's a couple of things, and and that's a really good observation about the second and third generation. So the pupae aren't really, they don't feed, so they're not causing damage, but 
usually damage appears after the fact. So after they've fed. At that time, you dig into the turf and you find these stages. And probably people would go with a, a product that's cheap and works on contact, but you're not killing them. So they're going to pop out, become adults, and start laying eggs again into the summer. And that's going to repeat at least one more time in our part of the region. Uh, so we know that we have three generations per year. And I would agree, the last couple of years, we've seen second and third generation damage probably more prevalent than in years past. I think this year, we just had such incredible amounts of rainfall, especially in May. In May in Pennsylvania, I mostly cover central and western. And we might do a few things in New York and Ohio, uh, but that's really kind of where I travel to. And we just had just record rainfall in that period. And on sites where we put down these tried and true larvicides that should give us very good control, we, we were seeing um, kind of lapses in control. Mm. Some of these are really mobile, so I, I think it was a matter of the product just being washed away. And yet we didn't really see the damage that we were expecting in some of these sites. It, it's something weird about this insect that I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to figure out. It feeds on the crown, so it should collapse the turf grass stand when it's in high density. But in the presence of moisture, sometimes we don't see that damage. Right. I don't know what it is or how it doesn't express that damage in high moisture content, because we'll see this around like drains on a fairway. We might sample around a drain and find tons and tons of larvae, yet that stand never collapses. Yeah, you, you wonder, and, and it's such a great observation, because as an agronomist, I come to it completely different. Yeah. To me, and again, growing up on a golf course, spraying Durzban in the rain, you know, yeah. in places years and years ago in the 70s and 80s when this was emerging as a problem, I can tell you that as an agronomist, I come to this from uh, how the plant's growing perspective, and it looks like it's a multiple stressor thing, right? Yeah, Maybe definitely. when the plant doesn't have any moisture stress at all, and because annual bluegrass really likes it wet, right. it could be that even though that feeding is probably stimulating another bud to break, the plant's probably saying, okay, this leaf is done. We need more leaves. Let's break the dormancy on a bud. And that when it starts to go, because moisture is plentiful, hydraulics is forcing that growth. The only limitation there would be nutrients, right? So would you say that it would be producing another tiller? Yeah. So if it's feeding on one tiller and that collapses, yes. it's not seen because it's pushing out another tiller. And I would also say that the one thing that we forget about 2018 is it, it was super wet, but it was super warm. Right. And so you're probably releasing nitrogen from the soil That's and right. growing through it. Like crazy. So my point about that is why did we see all this second and third generation damage? I think we were totally fooling ourselves on most operations where we applied it and then you got more than a half an inch of rain within 24, 48 hours. That's probably you just pissed away that application. And you never saw the damage, so you thought it was all working well until you saw second or third generation or both right. damage. All right. And that, that tends to happen. Like yep. If somebody has second or third generation damage, those populations are naturally lower. Some of those weevils go back into overwintering. Usually if somebody has second or third generation damage, it's like, I, I want to look at their records, mm. look at their timing, see what they applied in the spring. Mm. And usually that's that's where the weakness is. Mm. If you can get really good control in the spring, it just makes it so much easier for the rest of the year. 
Well, that's a perfect place to take our next break, Ben. Thanks for leading me to that. I'm with Professor Ben McGraw at Penn State University and State College, Pennsylvania. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking, and we'll be right back after a message from our partners at IntelliGro and DryJet. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject. The only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. All right, Ben, welcome back. We're going to get to your discussion uh, about cultural control of the annual bluegrass weevil that emerged from a lot of your. Gosh, has it been 10 years you've been working on this pest? Oh, my God. This is my 15th field season on this pest alone. So over that period of time, right, obviously chemicals are a component. We covered that. We just did biological in the last segment. So let's talk about how you've gotten into cultural and just to, you know, throw the ball nice and soft so you can hit it. Yeah. Uh, your recent work that you've published on mowing height differences and some of your fluorescent dye work, giving you an idea how these are behaving in the canopy. So set up this cultural work that you've just completed. Yeah. So the cultural work, it's ironic because I just lectured on cultural control of turf insect pests this morning, Frank. Perfect. So, uh, and we just talked about this work, um, so again, back to the survey that was published in 2017 from responses in 2016, we mined over the data and we were, one of the things that we wanted to ask is, do you see damage on putting surfaces? And if so, you know, what are you mowing at? And we captured all that data in the survey. And from that survey, it really worked out beautifully. Uh, you could see a very linear increase in what people were mowing their greens at and the percentage that responded to reporting or observing damage in putting surfaces. So typically in my travels, I don't see damage to the interior of putting surface. You'll see collars, adjacent collars get lit up. I mean, number one place I see damage is collars, approaches, but very rarely in the interior of the putting surface. And really that got me thinking the only difference that we have there is mowing frequency and, and intensity. 
And so I brought on uh, one of my former students from Delhi, uh, Ben Suzuki, to look at this for his master's project. And Ben did great work on that. Basically, we did some greenhouse mowing studies. We did some infield studies. Uh, we caged females onto different mowing heights to see if, you know, would they lay eggs even? Could the egg develop inside a short plant? You know, and I just use this analogy today. Something I remember Adam Miller from USGA saying in a talk, and I use it all the time, a tenth of an inch, you take two U.S. dimes and you stack them on top of each other. That's a tenth of an inch. And that's, a, I mean, it is a tiny insect, but I always wondered, like, could it fit architecturally within that? So we looked at mowing heights down to a tenth of an inch, 125, so that eighth of an inch. I should be doing metric for our Canadian friends too, but I'm terrible there. And we took it all the way up to 500 or a half inch for fairway height. So we had fairway, collar, and three putting surface heights, 150, 125, 100. Hmm. And what we saw is in the greenhouse is that adults were being effectively removed at lowest heights. Uh, as that height got higher up, they were not being removed by the mower. So part of the story was the frequency that we're mowing at and the heights that we're mowing at have an impact on removing the adults. The other thing that we saw when we started looking at egg laying on these, where we containerized them on the different heights, is that the female was doing something different. Instead of chewing a hole into the stem of the plant and inserting the egg inside the stem of the plant at the lowest Putting, height, uh, putting green heights at like 100, 125, she was basically laying her eggs on the surface. Mm. She wasn't taking the time to place them in the plant, or maybe it wasn't enough plant material for her to uh, place them. So she was just dropping her eggs. Mm. Uh, the other side of that is if those eggs hatched out, that larva would bore inside the plant at a tenth of an inch. So we know that they can be a problem mm. at those low mowing heights. It was just a matter of mostly removing them mm -hmm. through mowing, and possibly there could be some predation of the eggs or those eggs could dry out and die if they're just left on the surface mm -hmm. because tucking them inside the plant mm -hmm. creates a nice little environment, nice moisture uh, for them to survive. So there's a couple of things going on there, and that's what uh, Ben looked at. And then... So let me, let, let, me, yeah. let me bug you. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the mowing heights before we move on there. So just to clarify... Um, 150 mm -hmm. and above, you didn't see this. It was only at the 8th and the 10th. Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, between 25 and 40% of adults were being removed at a 10th of an inch. I dropped down between like 15 and 20% and an 8th of an inch. And then after that, it was pretty much negligible. It was like 2 to 10% removed at 150 so very few of them are being removed at 150, and which goes along with my observations of that's where I typically, that's kind of the threshold for where I see damage within a putting surface. It might be a low-budget golf course, a mom-and-pop operation that's mowing at 140, 150 during the playing season. Okay, so so the, um, I'm going to get to a whole bunch of other questions, other things, but let's, I thought I recalled when I was reading the papers that you wrote, which were really, really well done, You you and Ben did a did a great job on that work. And so when you have clippings that yeah. you've harvested from uh, these lower mowing heights, you potentially have live adults. You don't kill them. Maybe larvae yeah. that could survive. 
So would you say you want to be careful how you handle those clippings? Absolutely. So that was a surprising thing is that we were removing them alive. Very few were actually killed. I mean, more were being killed at the lower heights of cut, but the amount that were being killed was negligible. They were mostly surviving. It's crazy. You know, you think about a, a 15 blade reel spinning really fast. You would think that it would just be nicking them and, and cracking them. But basically, it was just shooting them into the basket. Yeah. Uh, so that does have a big implication of what we do with our clippings. And I've seen it. You know, I remember my first week on the job at Rutgers and Dr. Clark's asking me to look at his POA plots. And where we saw damage was right next to the clipping pile. And, it, it, you know, it only took me 15 years later to remember that. But, <laughs> you know, and we've seen it on golf courses where there might be a common dump for clippings in between three fairways. And then you see those populations build up over time and then they walk into the nearest short mode area and damage that. So in hindsight, it, it made perfect sense. <laughs> but it's always good to have the science behind it. So let me ask you another scientific question and that is the behavior of this organism within the canopy. Obviously, uh, once you get above 150, it's able to avoid mowing, but it right. remains in the canopy. And I know from some of the research I've seen you present on Civitas that there was some work you did looking at how it comes to the surface and goes down below. And if, mm -hmm. you, if you apply something like an oil it could have broad efficacy uh, on the on the organism by coming in contact with it. But you even went further than that, actually putting fluorescent dye in them and observing their behavior. Can you describe the work you've done just looking at their behavior within a canopy that they can survive in? Yeah, so that was really born out of, okay, this is great that they are removed from putting surfaces. But I've just told you that they can persist and they can hatch out and damage putting surfaces if the eggs are dropped. Really, to make an impact with your research, you would probably want to look at other areas other than putting surfaces. Because even if I told you we're removing 98% from greens, that 2% is going to make somebody spray their greens. <laughs> They're not going to withhold chemicals from those areas. So what we thought is how can we have a bigger impact not only on putting surfaces but also uh, maybe approaches tee boxes fairways at these low at these higher heights of cut where we're not removing very many and so what we really needed to determine is how does it move through the canopy when is it on top of the canopy because oftentimes you'll see them walking on the surface and if we could identify that time maybe that's when we switch up our mowing to go after them and remove them. And if you look at weevils, there's, you know, 55,000 species of weevils or probably even more. Maybe that's families. It's got to be way more than 55,000 species. But there are so many weevils and it's really hard to generalize what weevils do. Uh, but if you look at weevil behavior, a lot of them are very active during the nighttime or right before night. So right at dusk. Hmm. And so what we were thinking is if these insects avoid light for some reason are they really active on the canopy on top of the canopy walking across the surface when they could be removed in the middle of the night and then maybe we switch up our mowing and come in and do a midnight mow well that's where the robots come in that when we get autonomous mowing yeah. that's when the robots come in exactly so that's what we we're expecting again hindsight was not our friend hindsight would tell you if you're any good at your job as an entomologist that 
insects are cold blooded mm-hmm. and they're only going to be as active as the temperature allows. And this insect is most problematic or in dense adult numbers in springtime. And so what happens in the spring in Northeast today, it's beautiful out, but it's probably going to drop to 30 degrees overnight. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably not going to allow for much activity on the surface. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a really tight correlation between weevil activity on top of the canopy when they could be removed, when the temperature was between 57 and 64 degrees. So again, here's Celsius conversions killing me. But it was between 14 and 20 degrees Celsius Mm -hmm. is when they were most active on top and when they could do that. So in the early spring, that was in the middle of the day. In the month of April and May, you know, that occurred somewhere between 11 and 1 p.m. in our studies, all the way up to 3 p.m. in some cases. But in June, uh, when, you know, because we repeated these in different months to get different environmental conditions, in June when it was, you know, higher than 67, 68 into 70 degrees, what we saw is that they were really active in the beginning part of the day between like 6 and 10 a.m. And then as temperatures continued to increase, that actually drove them down into the canopy. So it's kind of this bell-shaped curve where we see them at low temperatures, unable to get to the top of the canopy, most likely because they're not very active. And then in the sweet spot between about 57 and 70 degrees or 64, depending on which model you look at, Mm -hmm. Uh, they're on top. And then at higher temperatures, that's probably too hot for them and they move back down. So my first thought was, well, when they get near the top, why do we have to mow? Why can't we just take a Wiedemann vacuum sweeper out or something and just uh, sweep them up? Do you see that as a viable option? I mean, I know you guys sample with vacuum samplers. Have you ever thought about the feasibility of large scale vacuuming? I do. And what I've been looking at are these vacuums that they use in strawberries and organic strawberries out in California. And you should see these tractors. They're awesome. Of course. We love we love that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So I've looked at that. We've looked at uh, we've tried to do studies and it's so it's terrible. I've got this piece of equipment sitting in our barn, but a billy goat, which is uh, what they use to clean out stadiums after the game. Mm -hmm. You know, people like me who drink our beers and throw them on the ground with all our peanuts and somebody has to come through and clean that up. Uh, They have these like walk behind vacuums. I thought that was going to revolutionize weevil management. And what we do to sample is we reverse a leaf blower essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's something about the size of the nozzle and the suction and the cubic feet per minute that it, it pulls that that smaller nozzle is is more effective at pulling them out. Mm. Once we go to walk-behind vacuum or even larger, it just seems to be rather ineffective at pulling them up. Uh. So, man, if there's a company out there who wants to work with me, I'd love to do that (laughs) because I think that would be a really cool way to do it. So mowing is the option then? So you would recommend Well, mowing's the option because that's what we have for equipment on the property. Uh. You know, this definitely opens the door for innovation. Like if somebody were to come up with something that you could effectively vacuum an area. Uh, There are some drawbacks to that, especially in the springtime in the Northeast where we're putting down a lot of top dressing or maybe even granular fertilizers Mm. uh, because we do see that where we're out vacuum sampling. We'll pull up a lot of somebody's really hard work. Mm. So we don't want to do that. So it is, you know, that's not the only thing that we can use this information for. Uh, We can also think about timing our contact insecticides. If we're applying a pyrethroid or an organophosphate to control the adult, I just think the less amount of material between you and the insect, 
the better your control is going to be. Uh, we only have very limited evidence for that in trial work, but you also mentioned the kind of looking at new products like oils, surfactants, stickers, spreaders, all of these things that can help deliver these toxins or even be toxins themselves, even make them much more effective. So, so you do see this information, them coming to the surface, making them uh, slightly more vulnerable to potentially alternatives. But Ben, guys have been spraying in the morning for a really long time, you know, and uh-huh. I know. Is it possible that, you know, they might start spraying the rough or looping things at five in the morning and by the time it's 730 that same spray in an area will miss the insects because they've gone down? Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible with that. You know, I, I see more of missing sprays with, uh, you know, there's insects in the rough and you spray the fairway and it gets really cold. I don't think we have a real good grasp of how effective it's going to be based on height of cut, but we definitely have our suspicions about that. So anything that you could do, understanding the insect's biology is going to make your cultural controls better, but it's also going to make your chemical controls better. Thanks so much for that, Ben. That is a perfect ending to this episode of Frankly Speaking, chatting about annual bluegrass weevil with Professor Ben McGraw at Penn State University. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on this episode of Frankly Speaking, and big thanks to our partners at Dryject and Intelligrow. We'll look forward to having you back on another episode of Frankly Speaking. 